Europe Out Loud, a podcast about Europe's history, culture, and civilization. Brought to you by the Martins Center with Frederico Reo. Hello, everyone. Welcome to a new episode of Europe Out Loud, a podcast series that brings European culture and civilization and history to bear on problems of contemporary EU policy and politics. I am delighted to be joined on the platform by Professor Constantine Arvanitopoulos. Welcome, Constantine. Thank you. Thank you, Federico, for the uh, kind invitation. Yeah, Constantine is, apart from being a dear friend, uh, most importantly for the purposes of our conversation, is a man of considerable achievements, both in academia and in politics. Um, uh, he is the Karamalis Chair of Hellenic and European Studies at the Fletcher School of Tufts University in Boston. Uh, but he was also, he had a distinguished career in uh, uh, public service, in uh, politics, uh, uh, achieving the, the rank of uh, Minister of Education in 2014. Uh, so he's both a policymaker and a scholar. 2012. <laughs> yes. Uh, uh, and uh, I, I thought, uh, Constantine, that your scholarship is particularly interesting to discuss at this juncture because you are really at the intersection between comparative politics and especially a reflection on democratization and international relations. So I thought that we could bring up an aspect of a, a topic that, that, that I have discussed uh, often on this, uh, on this podcast, which is democracy, the state of democracy in, uh, in the West, in Europe and in the West, uh, but that you could give us a, a privileged you know, perspective uh, on the state of democracy in America and also on the way uh, uh, national uh, democratization processes or democratic based lighting interact with international politics and uh, great yeah. power competitions. And uh, yeah, I, I would suggest that we get straight into the, into the topic, and maybe uh, starting from uh, America. We are, you know, slowly, very slowly approaching the 200th anniversary of an important book on American democracy, probably the most important seminal book on American democracy, that's uh, Tocqueville's uh, classic Democracy in America, which was published in 1835. So we are almost two centuries uh, later. And, uh, well, American democracy looked at from Brussels, where I'm sitting, doesn't look great, to be honest with you. Uh, despite the fact that Biden won, but still we are just above a year from the infamous storming of the Capitol at the hand of violent Trump supporters, whipped up by the defeated president uh, himself. So I guess my first question um, to kick off the conversation is, what's, what's the state of American democracy? How does it look like from Boston? And should we Europeans be worried about it? Uh, well, let me start by uh, thanking you, Federico, uh, for your uh, invitation and the kind introduction. Um, I would say that, uh, unfortunately, American democracy is in crisis, if not in peril. And I would say that uh, Trump's lingering shadow over the uh, political system and the Republican Party uh, his populist and liberal tendencies that um, resulted in the insurrection that you just mentioned on of uh, previous January. Uh, it's just the epiphenomenon. Um, the crisis in American democracy is a result of an assortment of, of deep and sweeping historical changes. Uh, 
Um, <clears throat> I would say I would start with the um, with the inequalities um, that um, sound very much like a cliche these days because you know we we repeat these these factors that are undoing our democracies. But I think inequalities in America are sapping the foundation of American society and polity. Um, let's not forget that um, uh, the United States, more than any other country, is a melting pot, a country that is uh, so culturally, racially, and ethnically uh, diverse that needed a linchpin. And this linchpin, uh, for many years, has been the linchpin of this diverse polity has been the dream and the expectation of material prosperity, the so-called American dream. And I think that the, uh, for um, a number of years, uh, decades or so, the American political system experienced centripetal forces because um, most of its citizens felt that they had, a, they had a stake. They were part of this American dream. Now, this is no longer the case. Uh, globalization you know, brought about growth, uh, trade, development, uh, and profit, but in a very uneven way. Uh, and, and, and more than that, if you will, in, in America, it brought an end to a long American tradition. Um, it brought about a decoupling of the corporation from the local community. Um, you know, the corporations in, in a globalized environment uh, left America, most of them went to foreign lands for um, larger profits, cheaper labor, less taxes. And in many respects, that, that represented the end of the Fordist tradition in America. That's one thing. The second thing I think we have experienced at the same time are the technological changes that bring about uh, a new divide in, in societies, you know, a, a new stratification between computer and, and, and technologically literate citizens and technologically illiterate that are being left behind. Citizens that um, experience uh, automation leading, leading them to unemployment, citizens that they don't have the means or the stamina to acquire new skills to be competitive in the workplace, uh, and and, and um, get employment again, or citizens that see their profession becoming obsolete because of the digitalization or the centralization of economic activity in various sectors of the economy that renders obsolete many professions. Now, take those changes, uh, globalization, technological changes, and combine them with identity politics. Identity politics, um, and what you have is social unrest because these economic developments exacerbate already existing cultural and racial tensions in America. All of a sudden, the fear of uncertainty from these shipping changes tends to a social anger against minorities and my, minoritarian politics that threaten, together with the demographic shift that we are experiencing in America the white population that has historically been the dominant group in American society. So what you have is a white backlash, and this becomes exploited by leaders such as Trump and not, and, and not only. Add the last factor, and I will end with that, that is discussed by Fukuyama and others, which has to do with institutional decay. 
And, and what these people are talking about is the fact that the United States is a unique combination of a majoritarian electoral system and strong minoritarian institutions. Let me give you an example. Um, I, I'm sure you know them, but just for our, for our um, listeners and our uh, audience. The Senate, for example, is highly disproportionate in its representation, with two senators per state elected regardless of population. You have Wyoming with 580,000 citizens and California with 40 million citizens, and yet those, both of those states elect two senators only. Uh, and that translates to disproportionality. Uh, we have disproportionality in that sense in the electoral college, whose, of course, direct election of the president is exceptional among presidential democracies. And what we see then is a discrepancy between the outcome in the popular vote and the electoral college, more and more. Why? Because the cynicism, the instrumentalism in politics and the polarization uh, have identified the so-called swing states, 10, 11 of them, that have the large number of the electorates. And so these become the main battlefields of the election. And so you have the discrepancy. Add to that gerrymandering, add to that the, the try to alter the composition of, uh, of uh, pressings, counties, and so on, add to that efforts towards suppression of the vote, uh, that you have in various state legislations that are controlled by Republican, uh, by Republican majorities that they feel that demographically they are losing their dominance. And add to that the last factor that is called political polarization. Uh, and you have a legitimacy crisis of American democratic institutions. Let me make one footnote regarding, uh, footnote regarding political polarization because I think that this uh, exacerbating all these political problems in, in the American political system. Of course, political polarization we had in the past in America, because the nature of the American political system is binary by itself. Uh, a number of features of the American political system um, are, you know, are susceptible to polarization. The binary choice is deeply embedded in the US electoral system. It has created a very rigid political system with two parties, but over the last decades, over the last three decades, I would say, Federico, that the two parties have reinforced their binary character. Why? Because the, the two main parties, the Democrats and Republicans, were large associations in the past. They tried to encompass different ideology, uh, ideologies and different cleavages. Now what we have is um, the homogenization, the, the ideological homogenization of the two major parties that reinforce binary opposites, urban versus rural, religious versus secular, racial versus ethnic. So that homogenization becomes, makes the American political system even more rigid. And the last comment is that this polarization trickles down to all the levels of society. With, with, um, with media and social media, uh, we have a vicious cycle. Why? Because uh, the, a polarized system sends into the political institutions extremists. Why is that? Because the more polarized your political discourse, the more chances you have to get elected. 
So this becomes a vicious circle. And this kind of polarization, we tended to uh, identify with less developed countries, never with uh, developed countries in, in as far as the intensity of it and the length of time that it has, it has been with us. So for all these structural reasons, I would say that American democracy is in deep crisis, if not in peril. And of course, it matters for us in Europe because um, America is the leader of uh, the leading power of the West, and it sets the tone in many occasions. Yeah, thanks, Constantine. That's a very comprehensive overview of all the of all the issues, and the, your sort of the ending of your answer also is a nice bridge to the other dimension of this problem that I wanted to discuss. As you say, America has been a beacon and has been ultimately the center of the, the hegemon of a benign, uh, if I may say so, empire of democracy, which is also one of the reasons why we Europeans became Democrats, American hegemony, of course, after, after World War II. So uh, I would like to, for, uh, to move now from, from America uh, as such to the global repercussions and the global trends that this uh, disease or this malaise, at least of American uh, democracy uh, might might have. Um, and well, the obvious question for us Europeans is uh, the one I was I was hinting at at the beginning, right? Uh, the stabilization of our democratic systems would have probably been impossible without America's benign hegemony and without the security umbrella that NATO offered after World War II. And now that America is experiencing a democratic malaise, we have seen in the last decade or so also in Europe, signs of democratic uh, backsliding. And, right. and therefore, the, the, the question that comes naturally to me, looking at the problem from, from this side of the Atlantic, from the European side of the Atlantic, is uh, how much of the democratic malaise and democratic backsliding that we are witnessing in the old continent um, is the result of the undermining of American hegemony and the undermining of the American uh, security umbrella. Put it more brutally, uh, can democracy survive in a post-American Europe if we get there? Well, I think that's a very good question. And I would say, Federico, that um, uh, what happened um, in the aftermath of the uh, Cold War um, was a sense of triumphalism uh, that um, prevailed in the West and especially in the United States. And this triumphalism, you know, was reflected in um, the famous uh, essay by Fukuyama about the end of history. Um, that, you know, that was it. We had prevailed, democracy had prevailed and um, uh, with, the, with the help of the technology, we could spread democracy uh, throughout the planet. And, and I think that um, what happened then, we saw, especially after 9-11, we saw a very aggressive um, kind of um, um, crusade for democracy. And, and I think that this changed the, um, this changed the, um, the, the, the American policy. It distorted it in many ways, in the sense that um, America, from a beacon of democracy that you described, became the crusader of democracy. And I think that um, this, this, this thing, together with the, um, the, the war on terror, distorted American foreign policy. And I think that um, 
led to uh, a period of, um, of malaise in the sense that um, it, it sucked American power and American resources, the war on terror, this is, sucked American power and American resources in the uh, quicksand of the Middle East and, uh, and Afghanistan. The neoconservative project about, you know, spreading democracy in, uh, especially in, in, in countries that um, did not experience uh, a prior culture of democracy. Um, I think that um, um, reflected the tendency in the United States that, you know, we, we now could expand democracy. Some people in, in the American establishment used the, um, the word of a new American imperium that was forbidden in, in the American uh, democratic circles in the past. And what happened is that these 20 years um, that America became um, so much involved in this war on terror uh, gave time to revisionist authoritarian powers such as Russia and, and, and China gave them time to, to grow and, and, um, and, uh, and actually project revisionist tendencies in the international system. What we see today is the result of um, those last two decades that I believe um, were lost in the sense that um, we uh, misprioritize our objectives uh, in the West, especially uh, uh, the leading power of the West. And, and what you have now is two things. You have the liberal democracies and the authoritarian great powers such as Russia and China to project power, to project revisionist tendencies in, in, in a polycentric international system. And at the same time, you see democracy being tried in our Western uh, political systems because of all these sweeping changes that I just described that are happening in America, but also to a lesser extent or in a different kind of way are happening in the European Union uh, itself. So it's not the West against the rest anymore, but the rest are within the West in, in, in the sense of problems against democracy. So we have a dual danger now. Um, the, the external danger that comes from uh, illiberal states and, you know, in times of, of uncertainty and change, people are looking for quick fixes. And, and, and democracies are cumbersome systems that take some time to bring about changes and solutions to problems. And if people look for quick fixes, they are more vulnerable to um, strong men or populist leaders that claim to provide such quick fixes. That's another problem that we're facing today that many people start imitating these strong men in, in, uh, in Russia or in China or elsewhere because they can provide um, uh, quick solutions. Look at Orban, for example. Orban uh, is, is an example uh, within the European Union of, of, uh, of uh, a political leader that um, in a populist and illiberal way is trying to, um, is trying to, to provide um, leadership of a different kind, uh, a, a, but a, a kind that, um, that, that erodes our democratic institutions. Um, and it's not rhetoric anymore. It's, it's his policies that are eroding the rule of law and democratic institutions. So to sum up, I would say that um, all this post-Cold War era was sort of mishandled. Uh, it gave time and geopolitical space to major powers such as Russia and China. 
um, to project uh, power and project influence and uh, revisionist tendencies against the international system. And if you combine that with the changes that are happening with our democracies, we have, we have uh, a, a dual challenge to face. Now, this is why I think the American administration under Biden came up with all this uh, new policy about the Alliance of Democracies and the Summit of Democracies. But if you carefully read the subtext of, of these proclamations, you will understand that what we mean now is defending our democracies. So it's quite a different position than the post-Cold War kind of aggressive promotion of democracy. Now, democracy is in peril. We need to defend our stance, our position is a defensive one. Actually, yeah, indeed, thank you very much. That's, that's a very interesting answer. And um, uh, I, I'd like to pick your brain on the last, the last point that you raise, and that's the extent to which and the ways in which we incorporate uh, democracy, defense, and promotion abroad into our uh, foreign policy objectives. You described um, the, the crusade, the global crusade for democracy America engaged on during the, the Bush, the two Bush uh, terms, so the Bush administration, uh, and you perceived a change now in, in approach in the Biden administration, despite the fact that, that the democracy remains prominent in, for example, the summit for democracy. You, you are one of the most outspoken, I think, realists in the, in, the, in the Greek academic and policy community. And so I wanted to ask you, how, how do you assess the prominence of uh, domestic constitutional considerations such as you know, the democratization or the democratic nature of a country in our foreign policy rhetoric? I mean, realists have traditionally been dismissive also during the Bush administration about the excessive emphasis that was placed on internal um, constitutional arrangements in the definition of Western and particularly American foreign policy. So do, do you think that, that that criticism is justified or do you think there are serious grounds uh, for the West and especially the European Union? The, 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 the idea of uh, promoting democracy abroad is also rather strongly ingrained in the self-understanding of the EU as a security actor. How do you assess all th this sort of posture that there's also a moral dimension, right? A moralizing even dimension about democracy in our foreign policy. Is it constructive? Is it positive? Or you would um, criticize it? Look, I think that um, if we look at US foreign policy, um, the ideological trends, but also in, uh, uh, policies, uh, you will see that um, they, they are the result of a constant bifurcation between uh, realism and idealism. Uh, and, and I would say that um, uh, what, we, what America always stood for uh, internally, but also uh, internally in, in, uh, in its um, formative years and its, um, in, in its um, way to the superpower status as a beacon of democracy, uh, as a model to be emulated, uh, and then later on as a promoter of democracy, what, what always stood for was, you know, the rule of law, democracy, human rights, uh, freedom, liberty, and so on and so forth. I think that, you know, the, the, the whole Cold War was fought uh, for these ideas and also for geopolitical reasons. Um, we, we should never 
we should never uh, underestimate the um, the impact of ideas, ideology, and values in in, um, in uh, foreign policy formulation. So I think what happened was that after the war, the United States became actively engaged in in the uh, institutionalization, the construction of the so-called liberal order. Um, the liberal order that in, in during the Cold War uh, had to do with the Western Hemisphere and, and, and Western Europe. Um, America became an external federator, uh, if I can use this phrase, when it came to European integration. And, and Europe became part of this liberal order. Um, Europe became a normative power. Europe became um, a, an experiment of um, transferring national power to um, uh, institutional institutions with supranational tendencies um, that um, had as an objective the establishment of peace, prosperity, and the eradication of war. That was our liberal order. And, and I think what happened after the Cold War was the policy of dual enlargement that actually reflected the expansion of this liberal order. Uh, not, not as many revisionist historians uh, are claiming now, even in the West, even in the United States, for reasons of, of expansion, for reasons of um, uh, geopolitical aggrandizement. It was for reasons uh, of, of responding to the demands of the people in Eastern Europe, in the Balkans, that wanted to become members, to become part of this liberal order. They wanted to become part of these Euro-Atlantic institutions. They saw the European Union as a guarantee for their democratic institutions and their economic development, and they saw NATO and membership in NATO as a guarantee for their security. So I do think that in that sense, uh, liberal, the liberal order represented a, a, an idealist, um, a, a liberal idealist position that was lofty and worthy as, as, as a foreign policy objective. Um, that does not mean that, the, the, that, that this lofty idealist uh, objective was not embedded in, in geopolitical uh, factors. Um, and, 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 and so what, what, I, what I think went astray was in the post-Cold War era, this um, uh, triumphalism that was the result of the end of history brought about hubris uh, in the sense that you cannot um, necessarily uh, transmit and transplant democracy in every uh, country, in every cultural setting, in every... Um, if you will, civilizational setting as Montesquieu or Huntington has told us. Uh, and, and that, I think, backfired. Um, so th there has to be always a balance between the lofty and, and um, idealist objectives in the formulation of foreign policy and, and, and the realism that um, goes with it and, 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 and I think highlights the limits of, of, uh, of such policies. Um, now, um, that brings us to what is happening today. You know, um, the most important thing of what is happening in Ukraine, I think, is that 
Putin has constructed a narrative, uh, which is a false narrative, because Putin is trying to tell us he's trying to demonize the West and victimize Russia. And what he's trying to tell us is that, you know, we have been aggressive after the Cold War, expanding our institutions at the expense of Russia's interest and Russia's geopolitical um, security, which is not the case. Um, the, the fact of the matter is that we responded to the demands for membership on the part of the former Soviet satellites that, um, that saw uh, their membership in our institutions as a guarantee for their safety and their, and their democracy and their economic development. That's number one. Secondly, I think uh, Putin is resorting to a, 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 an outdated kind of, uh, of real politic in the sense that um, he brings back all these rationale of spheres of influence, buffer states, uh, hegemony, um, dominance, the use of force. Look, uh, international relations, and in, in, in that sense, I'm a realist, remains to a large extent an anarchic nature, in the sense that there is no um, centralized authority that um, will, uh, will uh, impose the rule of law. But at the same time, we have come a long way in institutionalizing practices and trying to bring about um, uh, um, a, a more uh, a more peaceful, a more cooperative kind of, uh, of uh, global design. Now, this is a result to the tragedy of great power politics. This is a result to what Putin is doing is a result to uh, interwar kind of, uh, or, or 19th century even kind of politics. And I think that uh, it will backfire uh, because I think that his escalation uh, his disproportionate escalation in, in, in Ukraine is, is bringing the opposite results in, in, in three fronts. Number one, I think that um, uh, is um, recoupling the two sides of the Atlantic, that he had suffered sort of a crisis during the Trump administration and, and with America's sort of uh, retrenchment and, and pivot to Asia. I think that he's giving a, a new life to NATO because NATO is um, reinforcing its raison d'etre. And I think also that you'll see in the end of the, uh, of the day that he, he, he is bringing back um, a lot of unity in the West. And, and, and so I think that his intentions to, to, um, to upset or to overturn the post-Cold War settlement uh, will backfire. I think he, um, his escalation and, and his fear of influence kind of uh, politics and so on and so forth uh, will, will backfire. I mean, he may, he may win the crisis in Ukraine, but his victory will be pyrrhic in the sense that his um, um, strategic uh, objective to overturn the post-Cold War status quo, I think, will end in Ukraine one way or another. Thanks, uh, Constantine, and I can only wish you are correct. We will have to end. Thank you very much, uh, Constantine, for, for being uh, here. It was, it was a pleasure, as always, to listen to you. I'm sure our listeners will agree. And yeah, let's, let's end with the wish by the time we actually get 
to the 200th anniversary of Tocqueville's book in, uh, in 2035, uh, the state of our democracy uh, will be better than what it is now. Thank you very much. Thank you. That was today's episode of Europe Out Loud. Subscribe to our podcasts for more.